Well, good evening and welcome to St Matthew's Manly. My name's Scott, I'm one of the ministers. It's a delight to be with you on a Wednesday evening. Thank you for welcoming us into your living rooms this evening. Of course, it's a special night tonight because it is our special teaching night on the Book of Acts with the gentleman who's beside me, Dr. David Peterson. Hi, David. How are you? Hi, Scott. Good to be here. Excellent. I'm going to uh, introduce David to you in just a few uh, moments. Before then, I'm going to just explain how this evening is going to work. And I should say, first up, it'll be very important for you to download a copy of David's notes that are in the chat section or the description field on YouTube. Or alternatively, you can get them from the resources page on our website. It's a download, so if you click on something and you where did it go, it's in your downloads folder. So make sure you pull that up because that will be invaluable to you. Uh, in terms of how the evening is going to work, uh, as I said, in a moment I'm going to introduce David to you. And that he will speak for around 40, 45 minutes, introducing these chapters of Acts to us. Then we will have a break for just a couple of minutes for you to get a glass of water and for you to fire in some questions in the chat section on YouTube, and then we'll wrap up the evening with a bit of Q&A and have everything done by 9 o'clock. That's the plan, at least, and we'll do our best to stick to it. Uh, at this point, I'm just going to let you know that if uh, you're in a growth group, most of our growth groups will be looking at material from um, Jesus the Game Changer Season 2, which is an Australian production that really follows the spread of the gospel from this section of Acts that we're going to be looking at in Term 4, um, right up until the modern day, looking at how the gospel went to Africa and Europe and China and America, uh, all the way to the 20th century and beyond. So uh, lots of exciting things there. There's some video material there as well as, as a discussion guide. If you're in a growth group, uh, look out for instructions from your growth group leader and uh, that'll be kicking off next week. Now... Uh, Standing next to me is Dr. David Peterson. Uh, now, David, you have a bit of a history at St. Matthews. Do you want to very briefly explain your involvement in this church over years? Oh, sure. I, I was an assistant minister here for two years, um, 1969 and 70, uh, at which point I got married and uh, went back to Moore College as a lecturer. Okay, long, a long history. And a short, a short stay. And a short stay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> That's okay. Now, I don't know if you uh, realise this, David, but you have a, uh, a Wikipedia page. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, but you're not the only David Peterson on Wikipedia. Uh -huh. So there's nine David Petersons mm -hmm. on Wikipedia, and you're listed somewhere in the middle. Okay, uh -huh. so, but I, what I thought I would do is I would just check whether you've ever been confused with any of the other David Petersons on Wikipedia. So you, it's just a yes or no. Uh -huh. Okay, so have you ever been confused with David Peterson, the Canadian politician? Uh, no. Okay, he's uh, listed as number one. Have you ever been confused with David Peterson, the American professional wrestler? Uh, no. Okay, that's good because uh, apparently he died in 1993, so well <laughs> done. Uh, last one, have you ever been confused with David Peterson, the American World War II flying ace? No, that would have been fun. That would have been fun, wouldn't it? Yeah. There you go. Okay, so you're definitely a man in your own right. That's right. New Testament lecturer at Moore College, principal of Oak Hill Theological College in uh, North London, written uh, a stack of books on theology and practice of worship, theology of holiness, sanctification, human sexuality, as well as commentaries, weighty commentaries on the book of Acts. And you're currently writing um, a, another weighty commentary, I guess, on Luke's gospel. Uh, it's amazing, isn't it? Some people learn how to cook sourdough during lockdown. You've written a commentary on <laughs> Luke's gospel. Can you tell us about the, the, the favourite book that you've written and what you enjoy about the writing process? I think my favourite book is called Engaging with God, A Biblical Theology of Worship, um, because it's something that's really close to my heart, uh, and there's so much confusion about the subject, and I've had lots of debates, lots of opportunities of giving lectures and talks around the world on the subject. I keep on getting lots of emails and, and connections to my website about it, so it's an ongoing debate. It was published in 1992, but I, I, I still feel perhaps it's the book in which I've made the biggest contribution. Okay. And, and the, 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 writing the writing process? process. Well, I try, I try to work in a kind of disciplined way, um, no more than six hours a day and sometimes less, okay. um, and, and, um, and, and not get too agitated by it all, uh, and enjoy it as a, a kind of like a hobby as well as being, you know, work. It's, it's, it's hard work, but it's also, and very, very edifying and encouraging to me personally. Mm. Mm. Excellent. 
Well, uh, we want to say uh, thank you for introducing the book of Acts to us, especially the middle chapters. Um, not always chapters that we know or that we're as familiar with as the early chapters. Uh, and folks at home, don't forget you can punch in your questions into the chat field uh, on YouTube. I'm going to pray for you right now and then unleash you to the good folks at home. Uh, and then we'll have a break, as I say, in about 40 or 45 minutes. Thanks. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this book of Acts. We thank you for the way it charts the, the spread of the gospel. It's so encouraging to read of. Uh, and uh, we pray as we consider those chapters tonight that you would be encouraging us by your spirit as the word is opened up to us. And I pray that you'd be with David and help him to share with us uh, in really helpful ways so that we can make the most of our time in this part of your scripture. And we pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen. 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 Thanks, Scott. Thank you. I'm going backwards. So, the Book of Acts is the second volume in a, in a two-volume publication by Luke. Uh, the first one, of course, is the Gospel of Luke, and uh, that's intimately connected with his second volume called the Acts of the Apostles. We're going to look at the uh, introduction to Luke in a few moments where he has a preface where he sets out his purpose. Uh, but just for the moment, I just want to concentrate on what I've called in, in my talk the, the character of Acts. What, what is distinguishing character of this book? Well, it's obviously a history book at one level. Uh, it's looking at a selective history of what happened uh, in the first 30 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection as the gospel spread out from Jerusalem even as far as the city of Rome. Uh, it's it's uh, a book which is, can be located in history. It's always referring to people, incidents, places that can be confirmed by looking at external evidence outside the Bible. So it's a, it's a, it's a genuine history book. But uh, I want to say that first and foremost it's a theological history. And what that means is it's a history of what God was doing uh, in extraordinary actions uh, through his word and spirit after the death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. So when you read this book, there's the first clue. You need to be looking at what God was doing and what Luke is saying about the significance of what God was doing. Uh, but the second thing is this is a narrative dominated by uh, speeches. Um, can't change that. There we go, a narrative dominated by speeches. Uh, what you find is lots of examples of people like Peter and Paul and others uh, preaching the gospel in different contexts. And this shows us not only how they themselves spoke, but also how the gospel was adapted and applied to different contexts. And that's very instructive for us as we try to work out how to present the gospel uh, in our world today. Not that we should just simply take them and, and repeat what they said, but rather uh, investigate the model and see how is the gospel being presented here? Why is it being presented in this particular fashion? But the fact that it's a narrative dominated by speeches means that it's very interesting because it keeps on switching from action to speech back to action again. And these are all integrated as the story progresses. In fact, sometimes the speeches actually advance the action uh, they, they create a response which then has to be explained and dealt with. Another thing we can say about um, Acts is that it's a narrative about fulfillment. Uh, scripture is often quoted and explained uh, the way it's being fulfilled. Uh, sometimes there are uh, prophecies within the book itself. Sometimes there are visions, angelic messages uh, which have their impact on the story and show that God is supernaturally at work. So some of the big Things that happen, uh, happen first by God uh, telling people what's going to happen or telling them to do something and then the event happens and then maybe it gets explained afterwards. It's a narrative about fulfillment, the things that God had predicted that God says are going to happen. And this makes it a, a theological history. It's a real history. It's, it's, it's part of the ancient world. It fits very well into the Greco-Roman Empire of the first century AD. But it's a narrative about what God was doing through his word and his spirit and his uh, chosen messengers. Sure. I'm making a noise. <laughs> Great. Let's uh, spend a little time now thinking about the structure of this book. 
And one of the ways in which we can get a clue about the structure is to recognize how many times Luke talks about the progress of the word. Now that is an expression for the gospel. Uh, we, we can talk about the whole Bible as the word of God, but, but Luke focuses on the gospel as the word, the ultimate message that God wants the world to hear. And so he refers to the word of God in many places. Sometimes he calls it the word of the Lord. It's presented as a dynamic force at work in the world, transforming the lives of those who receive it. Uh, the word spreads. The word is honored by those who believe it. All these sorts of expressions. And actually I think that what Luke is doing here is reflecting on the parable of the soils or the, or the sower. Do you remember where the sower goes out and sows the seed and it, it falls on different ground and sometimes it doesn't bear fruit but other times it gets choked out and finally it, it, it grows and, and produces a great crop. And that's what's going on in the book of Acts. The seed is being sown and a great crop is emerging and Luke is highlighting that with the kind of language that he uses as he talks about the progress of the word. At the same time, uh, Luke is very interested in the growth of the church. He talks about the, the growth in the number of disciples and he relates this to the growth of the word. And uh, there are a number of summaries of church growth that Luke presents. Uh, the first one is in chapter 2 verse 47. Let's have a look at that. This is on the day of Pentecost when people, uh, Peter preached his uh, first sermon. And uh, Luke says that... Uh, uh, many were baptized on that on that on that day, um, and he actually gives the number, verse forty-one, chapter two, verse forty-one. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about three thousand were added to their number that day. Quite a successful preaching mission. Uh, the next time he talks about numbers is in chapter five, verse fourteen, where he talks about five thousand men. And that probably means women and children were in addition to that. And from there on in, there are a number of references where uh, the numbers are mentioned and, and church growth is, is signalled in terms of the number of people who are actually becoming believers and the number of churches that are being performed. So these two ideas uh, fit together. Uh, the progress of the word, you might say the growth of the word and the growth of the church. But one of the other things that Luke uh, emphasizes is the fact that this growth takes place through suffering. It's not all easy. And there are three particular references that I want to draw attention to, which are, are kind of markers in the text of the way in which the story is developing. The first one is in chapter 6, verse 7. And this comes after uh, Luke has talked about a problem in the Jerusalem church uh, about the fact that uh, some of the the people in the church, the widows, were receiving help and other widows felt that they were being neglected and they had to solve this problem uh, and, and give care to all and so they appointed uh, the seven young men, including Stephen and Philip, who were to look after this uh, social welfare aspect of the early church's life. And when they did that, chapter 6 verse 7 says, So the word of God spread, so... The word of God spread. Do you see? Because they did what was right and sorted this problem out in the church, the word of God spread. Uh, the, the many, and then it says that the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So the Jewish priests, you might have thought, would be the most resistant to, to change and accepting the gospel. But even this big change of what happened in the church brought about this new stage of development in the preaching of the gospel and the, and the impact of the word of God on Jerusalem. So that's the first marker. The second marker is in chapter 12, verse 24. And uh, in this part of the, the book of Acts, the word has gone out from Jerusalem. It started to move out into uh, the surrounding area. Uh, but persecution is taking place in Jerusalem at a very severe rate. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we read about um, the king, King Herod, who actually put to death uh, James, uh, the brother of John, and uh, arrested Peter once more. This is the third time that Peter's been arrested and put in jail. And um, eventually this, this problem is resolved. Uh, miraculously, Peter is released, and uh, Herod dies a terrible, unexpected death. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 12, verse 24, it says... But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. 
so despite all this, uh, through suffering, through persecution, uh, the word of God was continuing to grow. And some people have actually suggested that the book of Acts is kind of all about the word, you know, that it's the word of God, the gospel is the hero of the story uh, because the, it's the word that's creating all this movement and growth and development. Well, the third time that um, Luke uses this expression is in chapter 19, verse 20. And that's where we're going to finish tonight. Uh, when Paul was in Ephesus and he had his most extensive ministry, almost three years, it was very successful. So many people were converted. The word of God spread out into what was called Asia Minor then. We call it Turkey today. Uh, and uh, Luke says in, in chapter 19, verse 20, uh, uh, using his uh, familiar expression uh, in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power and he's referring back to not only the conversions but to the way in which opposition uh, was uh, encountered and, uh, and people who were part of magic and sorcery burnt their magic books and, and, and followed Jesus more faithfully and so on so th when he says the word of God grew he meant the influence of the gospel the impact of the gospel on the believers first of all and then on those around them was such that people were drawn in and uh, converted. So with this in mind, uh, we can uh, begin to see something about the structure of this book of Acts. And here I've spread it out into four big segments. The first segment in chapter 1 verse 1 to 6 verse 7 is all about the development of of the church in Jerusalem under the leadership of the 12 apostles. Uh, then at that very point where Luke announces the word of God is growing in 6-7, there's a changeover and you begin to see some new characters coming in, Stephen and Philip in particular, and there's a spontaneous expansion of the gospel to Judea, Samaria and Gentile areas. We'll look at that in a moment on a map. But it's spreading out from Jerusalem north. Uh, then when we read about uh, the end of the persecution in Jerusalem, for, for a time anyway, we come into a next section, uh, 1225 to 1920, which I've called Planned Geographical Expansion into Asia Minor, that's modern Turkey, and, and Europe. And then the fourth section of the book uh, begins when Paul finishes in Ephesus and the word of the Lord continues to grow and prevail even though Paul is persecuted, arrested, and uh, taken to Rome as, as a prisoner. So you can divide the book of Acts up into those four segments. They are geographical when you think about them, uh, about the geographical progress. Uh, but they're all, Luke is also drawing attention to the theological significance of this expansion, that it's the word of the Lord that's continuing to achieve this. Now there are some other markers of uh, indication in the book of Acts which also help us to uh, think about the structure. So in Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor, is converted, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, uh, peace comes. Nine, chapter 9, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So there's one, another one of Luke's numbers verses. Uh, so you see, there's a sense in which the gospel can progress in suffering, but also when suffering ends, when persecution is going on, but also when it finishes. And in this case, uh, there was a big movement forward because Saul had been converted. Uh, another uh, indicator of really significant movement in the book of Acts is in chapter 16, verse 5. Uh, we'll talk about it later on, but there was a big council in Jerusalem to talk over the issue of how Jewish converts and Gentile converts non-Jewish converts could, could work together and what were they to do about the law of Moses and circumcision and so on. And um, a letter was sent out to all the churches telling them the result of this and uh, Paul himself went around uh, explaining why this was necessary and urging people to follow the apostolic direction. And in chapter 16 verse 5 it says, So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now you see the point here? that an internal problem was solved back in chapter 6, an internal problem within the church in Jerusalem was solved. It was you know, looking after the widows. This time it was a big doctrinal issue where um, many people had to come from different places to Jerusalem to decide on this all-important issue. When it was decided, when the word went out, the church grew because the truth was being 
decided and propagated. Uh, so uh, the last point I would make is that uh, in the book of Acts, Paul gives, sorry, Luke gives a, a, a very large attention to the, the ministry in Ephesus. Uh, all the way from chapter 18, verse 23, to the end of chapter 20, really, he's focusing on Paul's ministry in Ephesus. I'll explain that in a moment. But it sort of creates a division in the book. So here is, this is the way that I've presented it in my commentary, uh, using this idea of the word growing and multiplying and, and achieving its work in the world. I think the first 14 verses of chapter 1 are where the, the, the risen Lord sets out his mission plan uh, for his disciples to follow. And then chapter 1 verse 15 to 6 verse 7 is all about the way the word impacts Jerusalem from the day of Pentecost onwards. You have this tremendous church growth in Jerusalem. Then from 6.8 to 9.31, the word goes out from Jerusalem to the surrounding region. 9.32 to 12.25, the word advances into Judea and Samaria. Uh, 13.1 to 15.35, the word goes to Cyprus and Asia Minor. Uh, 15.36 to 18.22, the word goes to Europe. And then the big section, 18.23 to 20.38, the word in Ephesus, the climax of Paul's mission as a free man. And the last chapters of Acts are all about Paul's final visit to Jerusalem, his arrest, uh, and, and, and then his journey to Rome, where he's supposed to be put on trial before Caesar, but we never hear about that. The book ends before we, we hear any details about that. So that's, I think, how the book divides up. And, and what I've tried to give here is, is a geographical picture, but also a theological picture. This is how the word was working in these different places to advance the cause of the gospel. Now let's think a little bit about the purpose of Luke Acts. Uh, right at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, uh, he has a prologue which applies to both volumes. Um, I'll explain that in a moment. This is what he says in chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke is, is pointing out that other people have written on this, uh, and perhaps Matthew uh, and, and, and Mark certainly was written before Luke's Gospel, and perhaps John as well. But he's investigated what they've said, he's had other sources available to him, and he wants to go beyond that to deal with the, the story after the resurrection in the book of Acts. And so he's followed all the events, he's looked at all the sources, and he was there himself uh, in some of the narrative of Acts. Because from chapter 16 onwards, uh, he talks about we and us. And it's very clear that Luke was there with Paul in the last stages of uh, his life and ministry. So Luke was very, very well qualified to, uh, to talk not only about Jesus in the gospel, but about the events in Acts uh, because of his careful scholarship and, and his investigation. He, he knew the witnesses, he talked to the witnesses, and uh, of course he was one of the witnesses himself. And he's writing this two-volume work to someone called Most Excellent Theophilus. Now we don't know who he was, he could have been a Roman official, he could have just been a very a prestigious member of the community. But he's someone who seems to have come in touch with Christianity and he wants to become certain about some of the things that he's been taught. And so Luke writes this two volume work, not just for him, but presumably he wants Theophilus to be the one who propagates and publishes his work because in the ancient world that's how books got published you had to find a rich person who would who would pay for the the the, the propagation of the book and so um theophilus is not only just the ideal reader but he is also whom, whom luke hopes will pass it on to others who might benefit from from this and you see that it says so that you might have a certainty about the things you've been taught these two volumes are designed to give Christians certainty. Yes, you could give them to non-Christians and, and to help them to become Christians. But these, these volumes provide certainty, I think, in at least four areas. First of all, about the identity, character, teaching and authority of Jesus. That's pretty clear that what the Gospel of Luke is all about, isn't it? 
God's plan of salvation and how it is fulfilled by Jesus and the Spirit that bridges between the Gospel and Acts. How and why Christianity has spread so widely and so quickly. That's Acts. And why there is so much opposition to Christianity in Jewish and Gentile circles. Again, the book of Acts is all about that. So keep that in mind as you're reading Acts and, and indeed Luke's Gospel as well. These books were written to provide certainty about these sort of key issues. And uh, be worthwhile just jotting them down as, as you read through what, what is Luke trying to provide certainty about here uh, because that is his stated aim. So when he begins uh, the book of Acts, his second volume, he recalls, as it were, the words of his opening uh, words in Luke. So Acts chapter 1 verse 1, he says, In the former book, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And uh, so that's providing a link, isn't it, between the two volumes. And also, in, in a sense, implying that the second volume is about what Jesus continued to do and to teach uh, before his ascension, chapter 1, and then as he ascended, Lord, through the Holy Spirit, speaking through uh, his servants. So there's a real continuity between these two books, both in terms of style, structure, purpose, and message. And we, we need to keep that in mind as, as we're reading through the book of Acts. Well now, what I want to do uh, for the rest of our time is to focus on understanding this segment of Acts chapter 10 uh, to 19 because that's where the church uh, preaching series is going to be focusing over the next few weeks. And uh, this is, is a really important part of the book when things begin to develop in a very significant way. So we'll follow the, the kind of structure that I, I, I showed before and uh, we'll uh, do a little tour with Paul and the others through this part of the book. So um, we actually need to pick up the story in chapter 9 verse 32 where uh, this um, segment begins where Peter, the Apostle Peter, is on a visit from Jerusalem to the Lord's people in, on the Mediterranean coast. And the place that he goes to is called Joppa, which is over here. And soon he's going to go up to Caesarea, which is up there. And uh, that's where he, he meets Cornelius in the next chapter. So he's not far from home, but they're already stepping out. Uh, and Peter's doing some pastoral visiting. There's already Christians there, so he's, he's visiting them to encourage them. But also you read in that little section at the end of chapter 9, about the way also more people became Christians as a result of Peter's pastoral visit. But uh, the thing that happened next uh, was world-shattering because uh, Peter got a message that he should go up the coast, up to Caesarea, uh, to meet a Roman centurion called Cornelius. Now, a, a, a Roman centurion was a very significant officer. He had a hundred men or so under his command and uh, Cornelius, Cornelius was uh, a man also who was a God-fearer that is he, he was a Gentile man a non-Jewish man who had attached himself to the synagogue the Jewish synagogue and was obviously searching for God that's how chapter 10 begins at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment he and all his family were devout that literally means they were God-fearers and oh, it says that, doesn't it? Devout and God-fearing. <laughs> he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Uh, one day in about, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. So here is a man who is searching for God. He's already part of the synagogue, but he hasn't become a Jew. And God has fixed his attention on Cornelius. God wants Cornelius to become a Christian. And the first thing he does is to speak to Cornelius in a dream and, and tell him that he needs to go and or send somebody to find Peter. And uh, then, uh, as the narrative progresses, uh, Peter is uh, down in Joppa and uh, he has a vision too. And the vision is about going to meet Cornelius. And this is how we see God being in charge of the situation. Because these two men who would not normally have met are brought together by, by, by a double vision, if you like. 
But even more serious, there's this problem. How is Peter going to go to the house of a Gentile? Because the Jewish law forbade him from eating with Gentiles, staying in their house. How could he go and be with a Gentile and take the gospel to a Gentile, a non-Jew, a pagan? And so Peter has this remarkable vision in chapter 10. Uh, Three times he receives this vision about... Uh, a great sheet being lowered down and all these unclean animals. That is unclean in the sense of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Animals that Jews were not allowed to eat or have anything to do with. And in the vision, God says to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this is something Peter says, I can't do that. I've never done that, Lord. I've, I've, I've tried not to break these laws. I've tried to be pure and holy for you. I couldn't do that. Over three times the vision comes uh, that he should get up and eat these unclean things so you see God is really working on Peter to open him up and as the story progresses and as he goes to meet with Cornelius and he realizes what God is doing he realizes that there's a real secret here and it comes out in verse 28 uh, Peter says to Cornelius when he meets him you're well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So it's not just the unclean animals he's got to be with, it's the unclean people. And God has broken down that barrier in Peter's mind so that he can now go forward. And of course this is quite revolutionary because it was saying the new covenant has come, the law of Moses is, is, is not applicable in this situation, Gentiles don't have to become Jews uh, in order to become Christians. The implications is are monumental. And in chapter 11, when Peter uh, comes back from, from being with Cornelius and Caesarea, he has to explain to the people in Jerusalem why he's done this. Because they're going to ask him some hard questions about why he's dared to go into the house of a Gentile and preach there and, uh, and have close fellowship with a Gentile. So this is a remarkably uh, significant uh, event in the book of Acts. And uh, right in the middle of it, there is... Uh, Peter's gospel which he preaches and I'm not going to go into this in detail but really when Peter preaches to Cornelius uh, he finishes on a wonderful note chapter 10 verse 43 he says all the prophets testified, uh, testify about him that is Jesus that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name everyone including Gentiles and at this moment the Holy Spirit bursts on the scene and uh, manifest his presence in a way that's just like Pentecost in many respects, chapter 2, a sign that God is blessing the Gentiles in the same way, not only with forgiveness, but with the Holy Spirit. Uh, so they're on an equal footing with the Jewish Christians back in chapter 2. And uh, this is the evidence, not just the vision that he had, not just the dreams that he had, but this presence of God through his Spirit working on the Gentiles, bringing them to faith, and, and these Gentiles are baptized and, um, and profess Christianity. So this is a real turning point in the book of Acts, highly significant because it opens up the way for the gospel to go unfettered into Gentile territory. Uh, but the theological problem is not over, and we'll come back to that in chapter 15 because there are some people who weren't happy with this move. Well, in chapter 11, uh, there's another turning point in chapter 11, verse 19. While all this has been going on with Peter and Cornelius, Luke says, Those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. And then, just spontaneously, they start preaching to Gentiles as well. So this is what you might call a lay movement. Uh, you know, Peter's the apostle. He's been specially commissioned by Christ to do this. But these are just ordinary believers who've been scattered because of the persecution in Jerusalem. And they're not going to be frustrated by that. They're going to go out and preach the gospel wherever they can. And so they go up the coast and they go over to Cyprus and uh, they, they take the word with them. And, and so uh, they, they spontaneously they start a new church. And the place where they start this church is Antioch in Syria, which is further up the map uh, in Syria, which is north of um, Palestine. 
Uh, well, again, this is a highly significant move. Antioch was uh, one of the biggest cities in the ancient world, and it was a place of great influence in the region. And it would be from this church, Antioch in Syria, that God would send out Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey in chapter 13. So whereas the focus in the first part of Acts has been on Jerusalem, now it switches to Antioch in Syria as the kind of centre of world mission uh, as God is going to um, send out his word in a powerful new way. The story of the, the church in, in Antioch is really interesting because, uh, as I said, it's kind of lay, started by lay people. And then Barnabas comes up from uh, Jerusalem to see if he can lend a hand. He realizes that things are happening so wonderfully and so quickly, he can't handle this. He, he needs someone else to help him. So he goes and gets Saul, who's gone way back up to his hometown in Tarsus. He, and he takes a long journey up to Tarsus and brings Saul back again, now called Paul. And, and they work together uh, in this church uh, and uh, taught a great number of people. And at this time, for the first time, the disciples were called Christians. To distinguish themselves from Jews and pagans, uh, these were the Christ people, the Christianoi. Uh, and, and that's another significant thing, isn't it? They were recognized as being a distinctly uh, different group uh, in this church at Antioch in Syria. Well, we talked about uh, chapter 12 and uh, the uh, persecution in Jerusalem. And we're going to skip over that now and just say something about the next section, which is about the word going to Cyprus and Asia Minor. Right. So um, chapter 13 begins with uh, the church at Antioch, the elders meeting together, and a signal uh, that um, they ought to let Saul and Barnabas go. These important leaders who helped to found the church and nurture the church, they should let them go because the Holy Spirit wants them to go forward uh, on a world mission. And so, I mean, I think one of the things we can learn from this is that it's God who does the calling and God who does the enabling. And there's a sense in which the church needs to let people go, uh, like let missionaries go, encourage them forward in the way of God and support them uh, because that's what this church in Antioch did. And where do they go? Well, they go uh, to Cyprus, first of all, uh, which is a big island off the coast um, of um, Antioch. Uh, perhaps they did that because Barnabas came from that place. Barnabas came from, um, from Cyprus. Uh, but this was the logical way to go in terms of sailing and, and moving further up uh, towards uh, Asia Minor, or what we call Turkey today. So we have uh, an interesting little incident in uh, Cyprus where we get a little cameo of what mission is going to be like uh, in the rest of the book where, uh, strangely enough, the, the proconsul, the, the, the Roman authority there is quite interested in the gospel. But there's a, a Jewish false teacher who tries to stop uh, Paul and Barnabas from preaching the gospel. Uh, but the gospel prevails and, and the, and the uh, proconsul becomes a Christian. A remarkable incident right up front in this narrative of uh, moving out into the Gentile world. Next thing that happens is that um, Paul and uh, Barnabas go up into southern Turkey into a place called Antioch in Pisidia. Now th there are lots of cities in the ancient world called Antioch. There's one in, in, in Syria here and there's one in Pisidia. And the reason for that is that there was a king called Antiochus Epiphanes some centuries before, who went around planting cities and naming them after himself. That's the kind of thing you did in the ancient world. So when you talk about Antioch, you always have to differentiate which Antioch you're talking about. This Antioch was quite a big uh, city, uh, and it was a place where Paul gets an opportunity to preach uh, a sermon in the synagogue, which you'll find in chapter 13. Um, it really begins in uh, verse 16 and goes through... Um, most of the chapter and as I said before the, the, what's really interesting here is to not just to hear how Paul preached in this context but to hear how the, how the gospel is adapted to this particular uh, region so in many ways this sermon is like Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost but it's particularly uh, focused on um, warning people not to make the same mistake that the people in Jerusalem did when they, when they rejected 
the Lord Jesus and, uh, and, and urging them to not become scoffers but to respond to the gospel as it's preached to them. And all appears to be well until the next Sabbath, the next um, Saturday, when they come back to the synagogue again. And by this time, the opposition is hardened in the synagogue. And, uh, and Paul and Barnabas are no longer welcomed. And uh, even though there are a lot of people there to listen to the gospel, uh, th- th- they can't continue in the synagogue. And this becomes a point of separation where Paul says okay if you don't want the gospel we're going to go to the Gentiles because that's what God uh, is telling us to do and he, he re- refers to scripture uh, the, the servant passages in Isaiah 49 which says that the gospel must go to the Gentiles this is not like a, a, a do or die decision it's not the end of Paul's ministry to the synagogues far from it you'll find that everywhere he goes if there's a synagogue there, he'll go first to the synagogue to try and give the gospel to the Jews. Because as he says in his letter to the Romans, the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But where he gets rejected like this in a city, uh, he goes from the synagogue and sets up somewhere else to preach. In this case, uh, just in the city. And you find this happening again in chapter 14 when he goes to Iconium, uh, another city in this um, Turkey region uh, and then he moves on to Lystra and Derby. and the further he, he moves on he gets further and further into pagan territory until he comes to a place where there's a, there's a, a crippled man and they heal this crippled man and, and all these people fall about thinking that you know Paul and Barnabas are gods and treating them as gods and for a, for a Jewish person that's a terrible thing uh, it's a blasphemy and so Paul gets up and preaches and this time he preaches a very different message it's a message that only just begins talking about the God of creation. Chapter 14, uh, verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now it's not much of a sermon, it's just the beginning, but it's actually saying to these people, we represent the one true creator God. We've got a good message to you, good news, you can turn back. Now he never got a chance to preach about Jesus and the cross and resurrection because the people just overwhelmed him. But this is the start of the way in which Paul also preaches when he gets to Athens and speaks there to a a, a completely Gentile crowd. So what Luke is showing you here is that there are different ways into the gospel, uh, different ways of preaching to different audiences. And this is how Paul did it to a really pagan audience. Well, um, before we uh, leave this section, um, I need to talk a little bit about chapter 15. And uh, I'm going to do that right now. Chapter 15 represents another important turning point as the Gentile mission increased and the gospel went further and further, Jewish opposition increased too. And even in the church, there were, there were Jewish converts who believed that the Gentiles should still be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And this became such a big uh, controversy that they had to hold a, a conference in Jerusalem, chapter 15. And um, in, in, in this conference... Uh, the Pharisees turn up, some of the Pharisees, and, and some of these people were, were really trying to hold this movement back. They say uh, in verse 5, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us, Jewish believers. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Can you see how much Peter has progressed in his understanding and clarity about these issues that the law is no longer 
uh, the, the, the central feature, it's faith in Christ and the gospel. And so the, the council tries to work out a good way in which Jewish and Gentile Christians can work together and they send out a letter which Paul and Barnabas eventually take to the churches. It's, it's a really significant moment in uh, the out, outworking of the gospel into the Gentile world. Well, let me uh, just speak briefly now about uh, a couple of uh, the, the last couple of sections. In chapter 15, verse 36 to 18:22, the gospel goes to Europe. And uh, what happens here, and this map's not as clear as the other one, is that um, they begin down here in uh, Jerusalem, Antioch, and go up through uh, Turkey to the a place called Troas. And at this point, uh, Paul receives a vision which is of a man of Macedonia, a man from Greece, we'd call it today, over here. A man saying, come over and, 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 uh, and help us. And this is, again, one of the, 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 the ways in which guidance is given about a radical change. You would have expected they would have kept on evangelizing in Turkey rather than going across the water to Europe. But it was God's will at that time that the gospel should go to Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and all those major cities uh, in, in, in uh, Greece. So uh, once again, we see how God is in charge of the situation, how uh, God keeps on opening up opportunities, and despite the opposition, um, the gospel goes forward. There's amazing, amazing stories here. There's a story of the Thessalonian church, which... Uh, First of all, seems to be very interested, chapter 17. Then, they, then people become antagonistic to the gospel, contrasted with the Bereans who search the scriptures and are very positive about the gospel. Then Paul goes to Athens uh, where he preaches uh, a wonderful explanation of the gospel, starting off with the doctrine of creation and uh, ending up saying in chapter 17, uh, verse uh, 30, 31, uh, that... Uh, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, the ignorance of, of idolatry. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he'll judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so the first part of the sermon is about creation, humanity in, in God's world. What's our purpose and how can we find God? But he moves to Christ and judgment and the resurrection and salvation through Jesus alone. That's how he preaches in a non-Jewish context. Well, uh, last of all, let me say something about uh, the word in Ephesus. Um, you can see from the end of chapter 18 that Paul is really quite interested in setting up in Ephesus. He seemed to have a, a real concern to go to the big capital cities and uh, start a ministry there that would, would go out into the province and affect lots of people uh, f from that central point and so uh, after going back to Jerusalem and coming back again he sets up his ministry in, in Ephesus in chapter 19 and there are a number of uh, incidents there which uh, illustrate the way in which the gospel was making an impact on that culture uh, but just listen to a couple of these things uh, first of all uh, in verse uh, chapter 19 verse 8 Paul entered the synagogue again starts with the Jews first and spoke boldly there for three months arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God but some of them became obstinate they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way that was a, a the way is a, is a way of describing Christianity the way of the Lord the way of discipleship so Paul left the synagogue he took the disciples with him and discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus he hired a lecture hall in the city of Ephesus where he taught every day so people could come and ask questions. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Uh, God did extraordinary miracles. Uh, there were real signs of the gospel changing people's lives so much so that all the uh, people began to um, get rid of their, their idols and their magic books and this began to create an economic problem because the idol makers were saying, we're losing money. And so they began to uh, persecute Paul and uh, a very dangerous situation emerges at the end of chapter 19 where Paul's life could have been taken from him. But he is dramatically rescued. So the word of the Lord grew and prevailed in Ephesus. And it's like uh, Luke is using this as the final illustration 
the most detailed illustration of what happened in any city to illustrate that this is the model, this is how it worked, this is how Paul did it in other places, and this is where God's blessing extended from Ephesus to the rest of uh, that region. Well, I want to conclude by uh, just commenting on four things that I think we need to be looking for when we're trying to interpret the book of Acts. And this actually applies to any biblical narrative. We need to work out whether the passage is descriptive, actually just describing something that happened, which may not have any ongoing significance. And you can't make spiritual lessons or you know, theological lessons out of everything that's in a historical book. Some passages are just descriptive. But some passages are prescriptive. That is, they, they actually contain within them um, commands, uh, exhortations that uh, we should take seriously even today. So, for example, in chapter 14, when uh, Paul and Barnabas are going back over the, the, the places where they, they'd visited and planted churches, um, as they go back, in chapter 14, verse 22, it says, Paul says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. And there's a word that not only applies to that context, but it's a general word uh, to, to Christians throughout the ages. Uh, some passages are encouraging models to follow. For example, Barnabas was very generous with his money. Uh, and indeed, uh, some of the churches like the Jerusalem church, they set good examples in terms of their generosity and care for one another. And some passages are warning passages, like the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, uh, who tried to deceive the church into thinking they were being very generous, when in fact they weren't. So there's four sort of tests to apply. Is this, is this passage purely descriptive? Uh, is it prescriptive in any way? Is it giving us some guidance about what we should do? Uh, are we being given a model to follow here or a model to avoid? A warning passage and um, I hope you find that helpful as you go through your studies and uh, and work together on these really important chapters I'm going to pray and then Scott's going to come and organize the the question time so let's let's pray a Heavenly Father we thank you first of all for Luke we thank you that he was a careful uh, researcher and historical writer uh, and that he also had a good theological mind. He understood what was going on and he tried to persuade his readers of your purpose and the way you were at work in these amazing events in the early decades of the Christian era. So we thank you, Heavenly Father, for Luke. We also thank you for the main characters in Acts who were such significant people in advancing the cause of the gospel and, and making important decisions. But above all, we thank you for your gracious work uh, through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit which continues today we thank you that this is our point of contact with this book that we believe the same gospel that we have the same spirit and we have the same opportunity in our day to propagate the gospel to explain it to people to share it with them so that they might become part of your eternal kingdom so we pray that we might be emboldened by our study of Acts and by your spirit to open our mouths to speak clearly and boldly and that you might use us to grow the word to grow the church in our own time as you did in those days and we pray it in jesus name amen well amen indeed and thanks so much david we're going to now have a 60 second break very short break so don't turn youtube off go get yourself a glass of water and if you've got a burning question feel free to slot that in the chat section in YouTube, or you've got a fair few good questions that have come through, but if yours is not yet up there, feel free to type that out, and we'll give it our best shot to give it an answer. 60 seconds, and then we'll be back on.
Well, welcome back. And uh, thank you for those people that have uh, punched in some questions already. Won't get a chance to cover them all, but we'll do our best to give a good feel. The first couple of questions um, we have surround um, this idea of, uh, and I think it's really springing out of the Peter and Cornelius story where uh, all foods were declared clean, but they weren't clean in the Old Testament. So what do we do with the Old Testament now? Um, how did the early church kind of rework the idea of what it meant to be clean or holy? That sort of. Could you speak to that? How long have you got? <laughs> uh, you got you got ninety seconds. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Uh, look, the the law of Moses was given to Israel under the old covenant, and it had lots of provisions which are either been fulfilled by Jesus in His sacrifice, mm. uh, or which no longer apply because the new covenant has come in. And so this whole issue of whether certain foods make us clean. Uh, you know, touching blood makes us clean. All that sort of stuff was set up for Israel under the law, under the old covenant. But even Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7, when he was challenging the Pharisees about the issue of what makes you clean, is it what's inside or what's outside? Mm. Jesus declared all foods, foods clean already in Mark chapter mm. 7. So that message needed to be reinforced for Peter. It was time to let go of these Old Testament restrictions because the gospel could not go to the Gentile world uh, under those circumstances, it had to be free from those liberations, uh, from, from those restrictions. So, um, you know, that's the issue at stake in the book of Acts. The wider question is, what do we do with the Old Testament more generally? And that's, I mean, we could spend, we could have another night on that one. Um, and and we've, we've got to look with discernment. Obviously, the, the moral teaching of the Old Testament is picked up in the New Testament. There's not a skerrick of difference between what they say about things, moral issues. But as far as the, the sort of cultic issues are concerned, and indeed some, some of the political and social law of the Old Testament only applies to Israel living in the land of Palestine under the Old Covenant. And so now as, as Gentiles, Christians, we read the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus and the Apostles. Um, it's the New Testament that informs the way in which we understand and use the Old Testament. Mm. Cool. I'm sure there's some more questions that might come in about that later, which we probably won't get a chance to get to. But uh, thank you. Uh, Larry's asked an interesting question. It's a real specific question. It's about Acts chapter 16, verse 6, mm -hmm. where uh, it says the Holy Spirit prevents Paul from preaching in the province of Asia. And the question is kind of why yep. or perhaps even how he prevented him from <laughs> yeah. doing that. Um, there are different levels of guidance in the book of Acts. And so sort of big major events, something like a vision or even a, an angelic word uh, are used to divert and change the course of things as in Acts chapter 10 yeah. uh, but sometimes it, the spirit is mentioned and I presume the spirit worked in those days the way he does today that is working on our conscience and our mind uh, to, to give direction and, and working through the Christian fellowship to sort of correct challenge and, and, re and reinforce if we all agree the same thing the spirit is saying just go forward so the spirit was stopping them from going in what would look like the logical direction why not evangelize Turkey and then evangelize Europe? Yeah. But the Spirit was saying, no, keep going, keep going. <laughs> Go on to Troas. Now, I don't know the circumstances, how that that happened, but when the plan, and that's as much of it as he reals, reveals. Mm -hmm. Cool, thank you. Um, one of the questions that I had uh, was really, a, I guess, the application question for the book of Acts or this section of Acts. But I think you've answered that with that last question. You know, there are... There are um, models of encouragement, there are models of warning, there are passages which might look like they're descriptive but actually have um, real value for us. So that the last stuff you went through is very helpful. One of the more specific questions about um, practical application is kind of principles that we learn from the book of Acts uh, about um, sharing the, the word hmm. um, in Manly and Beyond. Um, is there something about the way the Apostle Paul applied different approaches in different places that we could really learn from and maybe copy or mimic? Sure. Um, well, first of all, we've got. To, I think the important thing is to try and sort of line up the different gospel presentations and see how they are similar and how they're different. Mm. So, for example, in chapter 2, you've got the Pentecost sermon, with, which is talking about the Holy Spirit coming and what to do about that. In chapter 3, uh, Peter has just healed a man and he talks about Jesus healing him and the significance of healing and how the ultimate healing is coming with the new creation. Uh, so each sermon has got its own distinctive character and emphasis. But at the heart of every sermon, eventually, if they get to the end of the sermon, it's, it's forgiveness through Jesus, the Holy Spirit through Jesus, eternal life through Jesus. Uh, so um, 
we need to hold on to what are the essential things to get across, and then we need to determine how we get to that point mm. in, in debating w with our friends. And I think a lot of times in Australia today, we're back to, to square one. We're back to talking about even the fact that there is a God, that there's a creator God, yeah. and, and everything we enjoy here is, is his, his hand. Every day we experience God's goodness. Uh, you ought to do something about this. Find out about this God. This God has come into the world in the person of Jesus. You know, I think that's, that's a good clue about how to start with a lot of our non-Christian neighbours. Yeah. So you can imagine having that conversation out in the surf um, at the back yeah, there. Yeah, isn't this a great wave? <laughs> yeah, all that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, and um, like, would you look at, uh, say, the way the, the Apostle Paul preached in um, Thessalonica, for, uh, sorry, in Athens, for example, go, oh, that, there's, a real, um, there's a real model for us in kind of a post-Christian culture where he, he starts really with them and even what some of their poets might have said. That kind of idea. Yeah, yeah. I think if you put together the sermon in chapter fourteen, which never got finished, mm. and and chapter seventeen, you've got a creation-based message that ideally moves to Jesus, judgment, resurrection, eternal life. Mm. And I think um, because people in our culture think that science has disproved Christianity and that evolution has disproved creation, mm. uh, we've got to tackle that. But we've got to be be boldly moving on from that to Jesus as the true manifestation of God and somebody you just can't ignore you can debate about evolution until you go blue in the face mm. but what do you do about the evidence of Jesus that's in the Gospels yep 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 uh, thank you David uh, I've got a couple more that I think are, are quick ones that um, might be able to hit up uh, firstly uh, John and Margaret have asked um, if Acts is the sequel to Luke why is John popped up in between them <laughs> at least in our Bibles yeah <laughs> what's with that um, look, right from the beginning, the early Christians who put the New Testament together were convinced that there's one gospel and it's presented according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. So it was logical to put those four together and to say, even in, although we have a fourfold gospel in the sense, it's really only just the one gospel about Jesus presented by four different witnesses. So I would have really liked to have Acts following directly on from Luke. Mm. But the early Christians wanted to hold on to that fourfold gospel. And that's why from the, the very first manuscripts have, according to Luke, according to Mark, mm. on the top of them, uh, making that, that point of one gospel. Mm. So if, if John and Margaret said, well, why couldn't they have gone Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts, you'd be very yeah, happy with that. Yeah, they could have done that. that. I would have been happy with yeah, that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. Uh, look, there's a question here from... Paul Searle, who's actually done a few years at Moore College, so cluey chap, apparently. Uh, and he wants to know why chapter 12 is just slotted in the middle of um, yeah. chapter 11 and 13. Obviously, it's in between 11 and 13, but that seems to be kind of continuous material and it just seems kind of jammed in there. What's yeah. with that? Um, I think it's kind of like a last look at Jerusalem before we head out you know, into the, the Gentile world. So th the gospel's been moving gradually from chapter 9, 10, 11, further and further out. Mm. And just before we leave, this is what was going on in Jerusalem. Mm. It was still hard for them, yet God was sovereign and the word of God continued to grow. So it's kind of like a pause, but a very significant look back before we re really move out into the Gentile yeah. world. Yeah, so not, not forgotten, but no. really... We're going beyond. Yeah, it's, that's it's right. It's time absolutely. To, to move out yeah, and onwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, now listen, I think that that's kind of the guts of most of the questions that have come through. Um, I, I was hoping you might just be able to repeat the stuff you said at the very end, those sort of four qu four questions. Four issues. We want to ask ourselves yeah. um, whenever we're reading a, a passage of Acts that would be, I think, helpful for us to get the most out of it in, in terms of our own practical application. So those four, four things to think through, all those four questions... Yeah, um, okay, so um, we've got to think about whether something is purely descriptive. Um, so, I mean, what happened on the day of Pentecost, uh, in one sense, was repeated in a mini fashion uh, with Cornelius, but mm. there were unique things on the day of Pentecost, like the wind and the fire and all that yep. sort of stuff. And so that's interesting. It's a sign of God's power and God's presence, but we shouldn't be looking for those kind of things because even in the book of Acts, they only occur once. Mm. It's just a description of what happened. But then there are other things like on the day of Pentecost where Peter, they said, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is an ongoing prescription. That's how you become a Christian. So clear. 
And then you've got the, um, the positive models of people like Barnabas or the church at Antioch, and then you've got the negative models like um, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah. And so if, you can, if we can sort of categorize things like that, I think that's helping us to sort out, because this is true of all biblical narrative. It's, it's all written because it happened, but some of it has a distinctive message that we need to keep on reflecting on and, and even imitating. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So, friends, I think um, there are four very useful things to keep in mind, uh, as well as some of the real detailed, specific things that David's been talking us through. Uh, a lot of the comments we've been getting through, David, are actually just um, expressing their appreciation to you. So uh, I might uh, end with that. Thanks so much for coming and being a part of this evening and bringing your expertise and sharing it with us. And I think, as Deborah has said, and, and she uh, is a daughter of encouragement, what a great introduction to our Acts series. Really looking forward to it. I am as well. And uh, I think that's really been enhanced by your time with us. So thank you. Pleasure. And uh, how about I give thanks to God for you and for the book of Acts, and we'll finish our time together there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, David. Thank you for uh, the decades that he's spent studying your scriptures closely and the way he's been able to just share uh, a smidge of that with us uh, this evening. And uh, Lord, it's enthused me for this section of Acts. I'm sure that's it's done the same for many of the brothers and sisters so I pray that as we open it up, you would help us to read your scriptures with diligence. We would take them to heart. Uh, we'd read them closely and we would um, put into effect all that they have to teach us. And again, we ask this uh, for the glory of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, everyone, thanks so much for being a part of the evening. And I hope it's been um, uh, really edifying for you. And of course, we look forward to seeing you on Sunday. So until then, it's bye for now. Mm -hmm.